So this is the long-awaited diplomacy uh, podcast, which we've been uh, sort of promising to do for, I think, a year now. It's been quite a while. Uh, we did make a serious effort to do it at the months and months ago. And in fact, we recorded a podcast uh, and, and we binned it off because it was awful um, because it was just too specific. It was too about the game. It was too difficult to talk about diplomacy and how that works in the game without talking about all the specific cases that have, have, have taken place in the game. And then that, that just ruined it. It was it, it wasn't 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 any good. Um, and so we hit on the idea of uh, trying to make all our examples real world examples. Uh, and hence, this is the Brexit podcast. Uh, uh, I'm very excited about this. I think it'll be uh, either wonderful or terrible. But the idea is to try and talk about diplomacy in empire and how it works but with reference to real world examples rather than make believe examples, because that should be much less contentious. <sighs> <sighs> Although it does occur to me that we're now going to be saying our players are like this group of people. I'm confident we can avoid that. Okay. For anyone listening, for future reference, this. This is the point at which Empire went down in flames and everyone decided <laughs> they hated us. <laughs> shush, mm. shush, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I think... Um, where, where do we want to start? I think we, we want to start, I think, by talking about the, the role of diplomacy in the game and why it's why it's kind of really important. I, I think I don't know. Well, it seems sensible. We should start off by at least explaining to people what it is we're talking about. Yeah. OK. Uh, uh, are you going to start, Andy, or shall I? I can give a quick factual rundown on, on what we call the foreign powers. Yeah, that'd be yeah. great. Uh, so basically, foreign powers represent the people that the empire is largely not at war with that exist in the world. They're basically divided into two types, the local foreigners who share a landmass with the empire, which is Axos, Faradun, the Iron Confederacy, Skura, and these days the Thulorks in the north, um, and the distant foreigners, which we also use a number of other words like the world powers, uh, which are Asvir, the Sumer Republic, the Commonwealth, the Starkloffen Delves, and Jarm. the Principalities of Jarm. Um, the local foreigners are designed to be smaller and more accessible to the Empire and care about similar things to which the Empire cares about. The Empire has more influence over them because they are close by. Uh, but they could, the Empire could end up going to war with them and fighting them on a battlefield and things like that. They're, they're much closer to being an analogue of the barbarian orcs. The distant foreigners, on the other hand, are designed to be big, powerful forces who interact with the Empire only through diplomacy. Um, while they might declare war on the Empire, we're never going to field Commonwealth armies on the field for the players to fight because of the distances involved. And our assumptions around the distant foreigners is that they're roughly on par with the Empire power-wise, but that they have the same sorts of problems that the Empire does. Maybe not exactly the same, but there's a whole slew of things that operate below the abstraction layer that are of more interest to the, for to the distant foreign nations than the Empire is, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I think there's a couple of points worth pointing out there. You've, the, the, we talked about the foreign powers, the local foreign powers around the empire. Obviously, there are the barbarian powers, the uh, Grendel, the Yatoon and the Druge. But, but a lot of um, when we go through this podcast talking about diplomacy, we're probably going to talk in terms of the foreigners. But there isn't really uh, a functional difference between barbarians and foreigners in terms of diplomacy. They're, they're, they're just groups that you can talk to and produce positive or negative outcomes for the empire by talking to them uh, and by making deals with the them. empire or the individual. We shouldn't forget that that it's possible for an individual to prosper in foreign diplomacy. Uh, at the expense of the empire. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my point is simply that, that you know, obviously you can swap back and forth between that barbarian foreign status. Uh, I mean, I don't think any of us really foresaw the fool being foreigners at this point in the game. It's just how it's gone because of what players have done and how the, those those powers have reacted. In effect, barbarians are just foreigners who with whom diplomacy has currently failed. <laughs> well, it depends what your outcome, what your desired outcome was. Well, <laughs> Diplomacy has, has broken down and war has broken out, uh, but that may not be a failure from everyone's perspective. Um, it's all about what your objectives are. Um, so I, I think that's a pretty good summary. Um, I think the first thing um, I want to... The, the big question is why is diplomacy really hard in Empire? Uh, and I think it is really hard. I think it's hard for the players to achieve their outcomes. It's hard for us often to make it as enjoyable as we and as challenging and as and as engaging and as interesting as we want it to be, uh, and, and and kind of envisage it being, um, and, and 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 so that's a really interesting question I think. And you know why is diplomacy hard? Um, and so I think that's one of the things I want to look at first. I think, given that it is hard, if you first assume it, it, it is just difficult, the obvious then question would be why bother including it? You know, if something's difficult, why put it in? But for me, diplomacy is the part of the game I'm, 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 it's one of the big parts of the game I'm really excited about. If you're trying to run a game that's fundamentally about decisions and about big decisions that will affect the world and change the world and about players making real choices between different possible outcomes where it's not a case of this is the right answer and this is the wrong answer where it's a case of these are really difficult issues and you've got to pick the outcome you, you want to try and achieve diplomacy is just the perfect embodiment of that as a, as a kind of plot so it's it's the part of the game or one of the big parts of the games that i'm really excited about I don't know how you feel about it, Andy. I mean, you've actually run most of this plot over the last five or six years. <laughs> um, I don't know. Come back to me on it. See <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you feel in another five or six years. I, I you know, we've we've had some notable successes and some notable failures. Um, I, I guess, I guess, the reason diplomacy is hard is that we struggle to communicate to the players who are involved in diplomacy that all of our foreigners and barbarians, all of our not empire. Um, nations and cultures have their own agendas. I, I think that's, but I think there's a deeper element thing going on here. That is definitely a, a confounding issue that we have. I think we have struggled to communicate that well. But I think it goes much deeper, which is, you know, a great example where I'd immediately go into a real-world analogy. Diplomacy is really hard in empire because diplomacy is really, really hard in the real world. 
if you actually you know study international relations if you read the news you very quickly get an appreciation of how blindingly difficult these things are in real life that that nations don't sit down have a quick 10 minute meeting sort that war out and then it's all done by by lunch and everyone's friends look at the conflict in the ukraine you know the the, the conflict between ukraine and russia the uh, the militarization of that conflict by the russian forces i don't know how long that's been going on now two three years there's no sense that diplomacy is being successful at stopping that conflict because it's it's really really difficult diplomacy is hard in the real world now it's hard in the real world because people absolutely have conflicting ambitions and if you can't find a point of compromise where everybody is prepared to tolerate the compromise because it gets them what they want then you can't have a diplomatic solution um and and i think you know i think that's perhaps one of the things that makes empire often quite unusual because if you look at the traditional structure of an interaction with an npc in a, in a larp game the npc turns up they've got some sort of plot to deliver they know something or they're going to be able to do something or they're going to be able to give you something you interact and you role play with that character and it's a pre-written plot you, you have to find the lock that the key that opens the lock for that NPC. If you speak to them in the right way, if you talk to them, if you convince them, they will give up this plot that they have got to, to give you. And, and that's quite a common structure in live role playing. That's the kind of interaction that we're, we're used to when interacting with a lot of NPCs in games. You role play with them, you talk at them till you find out what it is they know that they're going to give you or what it is they've got you get the thing bish bosh you're done that totally does not work in empire's diplomacy because that doesn't work in the real world when 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 david davis went off to the eu to negotiate with um the, the i can't remember his name now the eu negotiator junker, junker is the boss the guy oh, um that famous picture where the eu guys are all sat around with the big folders and david davis has turned up without anything can't remember his Barney? Name. Barnier, that's it. When, when Davis talks to Barnier, there is no sense at all in which he's having an interaction with an NPC in which he just needs to find the right choice of words to convince Barnier to give him what he wants. That is not in any way, shape or form what is happening in that interaction. You are, you turn up with a set of goals you want. Barnier turns up with a set of goals he wants. You each basically play a complicated game of poker where you try and hide as much of what you're prepared to compromise on as possible and then you see if there's some sort of middle ground where the things you're prepared to put on the table will form a coherent compromise that you can both agree on or not and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't but that is a world away from a classic larp interaction where you just have to find the words needed to convince the npc to do what you want um the, the point is there are lots of times when we will run a diplomacy plot and there is no positive outcome that can be achieved and that that's not because we've written the plot that way because we are only 50 percent of all diplomacy plots that happen in the game the other 50 percent is the players we brief the NPCs and they turn up with a set of 
uh, goals and agendas of things they want to achieve, things that their nation needs, and then a set of things that they want to compromise on. The players turn up with a set of things that they want and things they're prepared to compromise on. And if there's an overlapping set, if, if you can mash out a compromise, you might get a diplomatic ag agreement. If you can't mash out a compromise, you're not going to get anything. But we don't know in advance whether that compromise is possible, no more than the players do. And I think that is quite unusual in live role play. So run an encounter where you literally have no idea whether it could it could even be successful or not. It plays to some of our, our design principles around the way we write plot. I know it's not specifically diplomatic, but we try really hard not to be fixated or to care about what the outcome of an encounter is, as long as there is an outcome. Yes. And it's just more obvious with our diplomacy in which uh, out of character as organisers, we don't really mind one way or another how a diplomatic, uh, how a diplomatic encounter ends. No, the point of running the diplomatic encounter is to make the world feel believable, to give the players opportunities to engage in diplomacy and to create interesting encounters that provoke role playing. In no way, shape or form are we even remotely interested in going. So then the players will make a deal with a fool and then this will happen and then that will happen and then this will happen. It, it, it just It's funny you mentioned the fool. So we spent... I know we're not supposed to be using actual game examples, but we I think this is probably safe. We spent three events roughly over the last year uh, with myself as the lead negotiator and um, a couple of Rushkins as the Empire's lead negotiator going backwards and forwards on the Thule Treaty. And right up until the very last moment, the last encounter at, uh, I think it was event three, um, I had no idea whether we were going to end up at war with the Empire. Mm, yeah. Both outcomes seemed... Likely at one point after event one, I think it was, I was pretty confident war was going to break back out again. I think it's really interesting when you look at that. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is if you think about it, it's not particularly surprising that every negotiation will go up, go down to the wire, will go to the deadline. Mm. And the reason is because you are being asked to compromise on a set of things you want. And you're obviously going to hold out on those compromises for as long as possible in the hope that somehow you can avoid having to make them. And it's only the impending disaster that forces you to make those compromises. And you can see that beautifully illustrated in Theresa May's EU strategy. Just to she... quickly interject, because uh, something you said earlier made it sound like this was being recorded in October. I'm just going to put a quick date stamp on this. This podcast <laughs> is being recorded on the 10th of January 2019 um, for any... So David Davis, despite what Matt said, is not currently in charge of negotiating no, anything no. with anyone. No, we're on, we're on Brexit secretary number three. Now. Yes. We've had David Davis. We had Dominic Rabb. Steve Barclay, is it now? I have no idea. Oh, I, I think I see, is Graham's supposed to be being Brexit secretary at some point in the next week or two. <laughs> I think we'll all get a go before this is all over. I'm looking forward to my turn. Um, anyway, so at the minute, the country is not actually on fire. Yeah. And you were talking about Theresa May's uh, strategy. Exactly. Yes. So Britain are, are being asked to make a whole load of horrible, painful com uh, compromises. No one wants to make those compromises. So... What, may, what what appears from the outside to be happening is that they are dragging out that process as long as humanly possible until the impending disaster 
as it may be, of leaving with no deal forces people to accept those compromises. So, you know, we gave ourselves two years to sign a deal which on paper looks like you could have knocked it out in a weekend. It doesn't look that complicated, except it's 585 pages long. But, you know, you read the summary and you think, well, it doesn't look like it would take two years to get something which is so amazingly important. But it, it, it took all the time that was available uh, as because, as Andy said, we didn't know uh, with the thaw. It took a year. It took all the time available because it needed that threat of, well, if you don't do this, it's war then. If they want to go, oh, no one really wants war. Let's sign the call. Let's sign the treaty. Um, and that's that is um, that's a perfect reflection of the compromise based nature of, the, of negotiation. You don't want to make those compromises. So it's only as that impending threat of war gets closer and closer that, that you're forced to. You, and there's a game of chicken going on there. You've also reminded me of something else, of course, if we are, are, are gently referencing the thaw. What comes across very clearly out of character when you're negotiating with the Empire is that the Empire is not a single monolithic force, that there are multiple uh, interest groups within it. The presence of the Wintermark players in the negotiations with the Thule, for example, added an extra frisson of excitement and, uh, uh, and uncertainty to the entire process. And again, I imagine there are probably some real-world parallels you could draw with that. <laughs> yes, yes, I think there probably are. Yes, I think if you look at the, the European Research Group, uh, I think the... the, the and I don't in any way want to make this political. It's not about where you are on the political spectrum, but the obvious comparison about the role they have played in the Brexit negotiations compared with the role the Wintermark played in the film negotiations. Well, let's say some of their inputs were not as constructive as they might have been. Um, it is very striking. Uh, one of the big challenges for us as profound decisions, I think really big challenges is trying to get the same level of non-monolithic status to, for our foreigners, you know, to try and make them as credibly, realistically, internally divided as the empire is. And that's that is just really difficult. I mean, that is technically difficult. It needs a huge amount of work and a huge amount of detail just to try and get your negotiators to not be on the same page. Um, and we do try a little, but it's really hard. One of the things we should remember, though, is that notionally, at any rate, all of the hmm, all of the kind of the, the arguments about what approach to take for one of our foreign nations take place below the abstraction layer and off stage. So one of the reasons our, our, our negotiators turn up with a with a set of things they want is because the equivalent of their Senate has already had all of its arguments about what approach they're going to take. We don't send two different diplomats out with totally different agendas very often. We, we do do quite a bit of it, but not in formal negotiations. No. So, for instance, if you look at some of the Asadian plot that's taken place over the years, or the Faradun plot is another great that example. Jam is a great example where we've had multiple different interest groups dealing with different parts of the empire. Yeah. So it, it does happen, and, and, and we are successful at doing it at times. Uh, but that's a, that that's if, if you think about it, it, it's quite easy to create a plot where or an, a diplomatic uh, plot where you say, right, John wants X, 
Y and Z and it's prepared to compromise on A, B and C and we're going to go in and negotiate with the players. It's much harder to create a plot where you can credibly realistically go, well, these people in JAR want X, these people want Y, these people want Z. They're prepared to compromise on A but not prepared to compromise on B. It, it, it does make the, 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 the diplomacy more convincing. Uh, but it, it's, it's, just it's almost the equivalent of Theresa May going to the EU to go and negotiate, whilst also Nigel Farage is creeping around the background and trying to get some pe people to agree to his proposals at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. It's effectively, and I don't think there is a real world analog to this actually, not directly, because uh, yeah, they just I don't think, I just don't think there is, but. Mm -hmm. You don't take, you know, the, Theresa May didn't say to Jeremy Corbyn, why don't you send Keir Starmer, the shadow Brexit secretary, along with the negotiations? And he could put his oar in, too. That sounds great. Uh, you know, she didn't do that. Um, you don't take along half a dozen different people. As Andy says, you try and work out what it is you're going there to negotiate on before you go there to negotiate. Is, is there uh, some parallel with some of the America-Russia relations? I'm sure you've talked about that before. I think actually the better parallel is with the, the, the EU Brexit negotiation, right. where there's a really good argument that the government didn't have a clear idea of what it wanted before it went into the negotiations. You know, that the evidence seems, you know, remember all that, oh, we're going to have the red, white and blue Brexit and people pretty legitimately criticised that by saying, what on earth is that supposed to mean? It's, it's a great, uh, you know, catchphrase. It's not a great policy. And the evidence seems to be that the government didn't really know what it wanted and just sort of thought, oh, we'll go into the negotiations, chat to them and see what happens. And that is a great way to get your ass handed to you in negotiations. I mean, that is just a, I don't think there's any book on negotiations anywhere on, on trying to negotiate a deal that says start off by not having a clue what you want. Just go in and talking to the other person and see what happens. Uh, it's not a successful negotiation strategy. The best negotiation is to get a team of people who are on message and have got a clear brief of what they're trying to achieve. Um, and the, the empire tries to do that. And I think when it, it succeeds, it's often very effective at diplomacy. When it fails, when it puts together a diplomatic team that aren't on message and aren't in agreement, then it, it weakens its hand quite considerably. But uh, yeah, so uh, the point is simply that trying to model that, that the complexity that JAM has back home is not easy. Uh, we do try, but that that's just a technical difficulty. Actually, I guess one of the one of the ways some things does come out is in something that I know is has frustrated some of the players, which is that the diplomatic representatives of a foreign nation are very rarely in a position to be able to sign off on an agreement mm. on the field. And while, uh, and sometimes I think uh, it's it's easy to forget that that parallels the players' experience. Yeah, yeah, there is a frustrating kind of. There is this assumption that our NPCs should just be able to sign the deal right there in front of everyone. But obviously, with the understanding of our NPCs that, that the players haven't yet decided whether they're going to agree the deal or not, and they've got to put it to their Senate. 
um, if you look in the in the real world, you see this happen all the time. You know, the again, the Brexit negotiations, the British team go over there and they went into the tunnel at the point where they decided they were actually going to have to start negotiating seriously. They had a media blackout. They sat down with the EU team. They hammered out a deal. Both sides said, OK, right, we've, we've got the shape of the deal. But the, the implicit understanding was that Barnier was going to take that back to the 27 heads of state who would sign off on it and that May would take it back to the government and have to get it through Parliament. Everybody knew she would have to get it through Parliament. Of course, that's just the same as a, a, a negotiator in, in the empire who an ambassador or an ambassadorial team or a negotiating team. They agree a deal with JARM or with the Commonwealth. They have to get that deal through the Senate. But likewise, implicit in that in character must be the understanding that the Jarmish diplomat has to take that deal back and get it through his equivalent of the Senate. Uh, you know, and, 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 and there isn't always an appreciation of the quid pro quo there that both sides have got to get it agreed. Uh, and the obvious question, and you can see why from the players' point of view, the players can absolutely understand that there is a political process to the empire. You know, everybody knows about the Senate and how it works. And everybody can see that you've got to play this role-playing game where you've got to convince all these other senators and other people to vote for it. And that game does not exist through our NPCs. Our, when we said brief an NPC, they don't come back off backstage and then we role play out them trying to convince the Charmish uh, principalities to sign the deal. It's not a role. But of course, we do need to out of character look at it and check that the deal makes sense, that, that, that the, the, the ambassador hasn't made a mistake or agreed to something that Jarm could never agree to. Jarm you know, promised got... 17 armies will walk over the southern border of the empire. Yeah, something crazy that, that, that isn't possible or isn't in Jarm's interest so that Jarm would never agree to. So we've got to check that deal for out of character reasons to keep the game coherent and consistent and unbelievable um, and, and to also ensure that our NPCs remain credible uh, as negotiating um, as re representatives of a, a credible empire um, I, 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 but, but, but so it's frustrating for players that don't understand it, but but if you look in the real world, this model is just uh, is everywhere. If you look at the American negotiating uh, model, the president broadly has complete sway over foreign uh, relations between the states and other countries. But if they if they sign a deal, if they sign a peace treaty or a treaty or a deal, they have to get that deal through Congress. So recently, the Trump administration has renegotiated NAFTA. It's going to be called the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement or whatever, or they might as well just call it the Trump Agreement. Um, but they've all agreed it. All the parties have agreed it, the Mexicans, the Canadians and the Americans. But they now have to take that back to their relevant authorities, uh, relevant parliament or parliament equivalents and get it passed. They can't just sign it off there and then. They don't, they don't, it's not how diplomacy works in the real world. Diplomacy in Empire is slow. It is. But it's still quicker than it is in the real world. Yes. Uh, yes, it is. Um, in some ways, yeah, perhaps by a similar kind of timescale, really. I think Empire often runs at the rate of, for me, what feels like a year or two per event. 
um, just in terms of how quickly people forget dead characters, how quickly the world moves on, how quickly things get built. You don't build a castle in a year in the 13th century in the real world, you know, or six months or whatever, if you're using magic. It, it would take a bit longer than that, but I don't know, something like four or five times longer. But obviously we could press the game because we want an exciting game. Press the time. Nobody wants realistic. Nobody wants realism in LARP. That's got no place in LARP. Where drama first, realism second. Drama first is interesting, of course, because, uh, or actually, I might talk quite slowly so we've got the opportunity to cut this bit out if we want to. <laughs> All of our foreign nations have red lines they won't compromise on. Yeah. And that can be quite frustrating for an empire that desperately wants to achieve a consensus of compromise. There is no scenario that you can present a deal where Sumar agrees that heresy is fine. Yeah. For example. Yeah, it's quite interesting because I get, you know, that that that's that so clearly reflects the, the way diplomacy works in the real world. There's just endless examples. Um but 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 a great example is Trump's negotiation running up to the renegotiation of NAFTA. And Trump was there saying to the Mexicans, look. I, you know, I told everyone you're going to pay for the wall. So could you please stop telling everyone you're not going to pay for the wall? And the Mexicans are like, no, we're not going to say that. Not only are we not going to agree to pay for the wall, we're not even prepared to stop telling everyone we won't pay for the wall. It wasn't just that they wouldn't. You know, there, there are no and, and no credible human being with a realistic analysis could see any possibility of any kind under which the Mexicans were going to pay for the wall. It, it was it would be political suicide for any Mexican president to have even been prepared to publicly uh, publicly acknowledge that that might be a possibility it would have been political suicide. So not a single uh, Mexican did acknowledge it was a possibility. And yet you get a strong sense reading between the lines of the reporting that that Trump simply didn't appreciate how impossible it would be for the Mexicans to even contemplate playing lip service to that claim. You, there's no negotiation you can make with them where the Mexicans will do that. And our our foreigners are just the same. Our barbarians, our foreigners, our diplomatic powers are just the, the same. The slavery issue is an obvious one. The empire's made several overtures to Asavir and Jarm. Could they just stop uh, telling people that slaves harvest the materials that the empire buys from them? And in both cases, Asavir and Jarm obviously have said, no. Yeah. No, we can't. All of our white granite, all of our weirwood is harvested by slaves because that is how our... How our Cultural society and our thousands of years of traditions are built. So it's quite insulting that you keep asking us to lie and claim they're not. Yeah, it's, it's, it's and the, the point is there, there are a load of stuff the Assyrians will compromise on. Yep. There's a load of stuff that, that they can negotiate with and compromise on. There are things they will and won't do. Um, but you've, the, the better... As a negotiator, as a diplomat, the better you understand the enemy, the, 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 the person on the other side of the table, the better idea you have of what they will and won't compromise on, the better a deal you're going to come away with. It's just obvious game theory that if you know where they're prepared to compromise, where to spend your effort pushing, which doors will open and which doors won't, you're going to get a better deal. Um, I, I don't want to get too political. 
but but I think if you look at the EU negotiations, all right, I, 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 I get you <laughs> Sorry. We've already, we've already lost 50% of our players, Matt, so we might as well just dive no, into go, it. Go the whole hog. I think that there are some elements of the um, European Research Group uh, that have perhaps had unrealistic expectations of where the EU would and would not compromise. And they have called for the negotiations to follow the pattern that they imagine the EU will agree to. And they may be right. They may absolutely have been right. You know, maybe the correct policy would have been to send Boris Johnson in there. I mean, what was Trump's response? I'd just sue them. I'd send the lawyers in or some some ridiculous crap. Uh, You know, it may well have been the case that we should have sent Rhys Mogg and Boris Johnson and David Davis over there to say, you're going to give us everything we want or we walk out of here and we don't give you a penny. Um, I, my sense from reading the news or whatever, whichever way you look at it, that isn't how the negotiations have gone. And I think the evidence would be that in hindsight that the EU were never going to agree to the kind of demands that the ERG were making. And, and, if you go into the um, if you go into a negotiation with fixed red lines on things that they will not compromise on, then nothing you're not going to get a deal. By definition, if your point of compromise does not overlap with their point of compromise, no deal is possible. So know your enemy. Know your enemy. Absolutely crucial that you've got the best possible understanding of what they will and won't compromise on. Now, it'd be easy for the players to say, oh, how on earth would we know that? How on earth would we find that out? You know, it's just not possible. We try and do everything we can to telegraph that and foreshadow that. You know, you can read the the reports the ambassadors get that, that are all about, you know, the state of play in those foreign nations and what people are or are not doing. You can listen to the, the negotiators and, and read, you know, read their, their personality and read, uh, you know, you can basically read their, their poker bluff and try and work out where they will and won't go. But it's difficult. It's difficult. But it, it's equally difficult for us. We often have no idea what the players will compromise on, you know, and, and, and it's, it's a fun backroom game, isn't it? You know, oh, I think they'll compromise on this. No, you're wrong. I bet you a quid they don't. You know, we, it is, it, you know, from our perspective, we are a, almost a complete black box of knowing where the players will and won't negotiate, uh, what they will and won't compromise on. Uh, and that's, yeah, that, that's, you know, that makes running... Uh, diplomacy plot much more believable but much more difficult much more challenging yeah and it it both makes it harder in character uh because it's you know as we've just said if you don't know what your opponent wants and what they'll compromise on it's hard to get a deal but it also makes it hard out of character um in a perfect world we'd have perfect knowledge of where the players would and wouldn't compromise and we could write beautiful plots that dovetailed perfectly with that in in creative and constructive ways meanwhile back in the real world we're just throwing darts at a dart we, we, need, we need to be a little careful about saying know your opponents for example the primary resource for knowing your opponent um is the stuff that's on the public facing wiki yeah um you won't improve your negotiation much by trying to find out exactly how the house of princes works in john no 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 but but you need it's absolutely vital it is the first point is is trying to develop a sense of empathy you you know it should have been blatantly apparent to trump 
that it would be political suicide for any Mexican president to agree to his demand to pay for the wall. Now, you don't you say, well, how? Well, you know, Trump's clearly never been to Mexico. He doesn't know any Mexicans. He clearly doesn't know anything about Mexico as a country. How could he possibly know that the Mexicans wouldn't agree to that? And the answer to that is you think, right, OK, I'm imagining uh, that some guy has turned up in Europe. Michael Barnier has gone on the news and he's announced that Britain's got to pay 200 billion to get a transition deal with the EU. And that's you know, that's non-negotiable and we're going to get no positive benefits from that at all. How would I feel about that? How would I feel if if how would I feel as American if the Mexicans were going to build a wall and demand we pay for it? Well, I'd be insulted. I would be outraged. I would be angry. I would be vociferously defensive against that. Your starting point is actually empathy, is trying to put yourself in that person's shoes and think, how would I feel in that situation if someone was negotiating this point with me? And if you can't imagine yourself compromising, you're pretty fair bet that the other person isn't going to compromise. That's your starting point. Uh, you know, and that's just negotiation 101, babe. Um, but, it, but, it, but I don't think it's... I don't think we've got a long experience. I've certainly not played many LARP games where that felt crucial to what to success in the game. You know, I, I just, yeah. And I, I think that comes back to the fact that diplomacy is so powerful in the empire, so powerful. You know, we've talked about it being the equivalent of the war, the, the war game, the battles, the military campaigns. You know, the, the, the empire in a very credible sense, defeated the Thule. They defeated them militarily. You know, they forced the Thule to sign a peace treaty. And then effectively, they have used diplomacy to prevent the Thule coming back and attacking them again. Now, you can read both wins and defeats into the history of the, the, the Empire's negotiations with the Thule. But, but at a broad level, at a, at a very uh, sort of high level overview, the Empire were at war with the Thule and now they have not been at war with the Thule for three years as a result of diplomacy. That's had a, you know, that, that's a dramatically powerful effect on the game and it is easily the equivalent of the battles and the campaigns. So not surprisingly, like the battles and the campaigns, you win and you lose some. You don't win them all. <laughs> the game would be too easy. If the players won, won every battle, that would be an indication that we had made the, written the game to be too easy. If they won every negotiation, that would be a clear sign that we were simply making the game too easy for them. There has to be some failure or that there's no, there's no triumph if there's no failure. Sometimes you win, but half of Wintermark is killed by a rhino. Sometimes you win and half of Wintermark killed by a rhino sometimes you win and you have to give up the silver peaks mm. you know <laughs> there's rare that that and this is particularly true in diplomacy in war you absolutely can utterly annihilate your opponent you can defeat them and, and, and slay them utterly it's really hard to do that diplomatically because why would anyone concede everything if you're being asked to concede everything then you might as well just go to war You've nothing to lose. You've <laughs> nothing to lose except your life at that point. It's like you're being asked to concede everything. 
you can't win a total victory in diplomacy. All you can do is get the upper hand uh, and 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 get that victory. Uh, you can get a victory. You can't get a total victory. There's a, an interesting, I, and I think if we pull it back to empire very briefly, talking about the um, that that sense of how you're forced to make more compromises as you get closer to to the perceived deadline. If we look at the Great Forest Orc negotiation, where the empire was negotiating with the orcs from the Great Forest. They were actually the Great Forest. We were very conscious that the Great Forest Orcs were in a very weak position. You know, they are a tiny, tiny political power. They were desperately trying to play the blessed hand they had. And I'm not convinced the Empire was playing them for time and just bluffing them. But the fact that they couldn't get a deal for various logistical and game reasons, there were a whole set of reasons that a deal was not happening meant that in character the great forest orcs are getting more and more desperate because they needed a deal they they couldn't walk away from the table they, in the end so in the end they were forced to compromise on things they didn't want to compromise on uh they didn't compromise on things they couldn't compromise on but they compromised on things they didn't want to compromise on because the impending horror of no deal of war was coming down the line towards them and that that forced them um, so uh, perversely, sometimes the, the length of time diplomacy takes can play to the empire's favour. But, uh, but that happens when you've got the upper hand. If you're the power block, if you're the big significant power, the longer the negotiations play out, probably the more it's favouring you. And we see that really. There's, there's another thing with the Great Forest Orcs. I'm just not sure it's a, it's a useful topic to talk about. Um, but let me pitch it anyway which is around the fact that diplomacy is in character and not out of character and there is no international court of appeal when it comes to diplomacy yes so what i mean is um was anybody surprised when the druge cheerfully broke the peace treaty <laughs> i hope uh, not i really hope not uh, likewise if if something happens with the thule that that makes the empire unhappy there is no there is nobody for the empire to appeal to that isn't the thule yes that it needs to be sorted out in character and sometimes i think it is easy from a 21st century perspective to assume that there is some larger body that is going to force people to stick to a treaty yes we we are we are all children of the of the, of the 21st century of a, a world of the united nations and the world trade organization and these overarching global political structures and there's this sense that if you break the deal and, and of course we're all children of legal societies there's a very strong sense that that is it's cultural for us to assume that if you sign a deal with someone and you break that deal then you will go to the authorities and go or they will go to the authorities and go, this person has broken the deal. You, the authority, will now enforce that deal. But actually, if we look at Trump's handling of the Iran deal, that's a deal where, you know, the European nations, the, 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 the Russia, China, America, Europe, uh, basically sat down with Iran and agreed a deal. And the deal's pretty clear. And nobody that I know has suggested that the Iranians are breaking their part of the deal. The Iranians are stuck to their part of the deal. They've done a load of other shit that nobody's happy with. You know, they got involved in Syria. They had proxies fighting for influence across the Middle East. They've done all, they've tested mid-range ballistic missiles. I'm not 
so for a minute suggesting the Iranians are, are somehow whiter than white. But nobody's suggesting they broke the deal they signed. But for domestic political reasons, the Americans tore it up anyway. They just said, no, we're literally unilaterally going to violate this treaty that we'd signed with you. Just going to tear it up because we can. And there's no higher power that anyone can go to. The Iranians can't. Uh, well, the Iranians could go to the United Nations and go, oh, they've broken this deal. But given the Americans had a veto on the Council of the United Nations, I think they're smart enough to understand that's going nowhere. There's nobody you can go to enforce the deal. So the deal, all the deals that you can make in empire reflect that reality that they are only they're only as good as the relationship that you have with that nation. Um, that's not to say that breaking them is without repercussion because the game world aspires towards a, a, a coherent, consistent approach, as we saw with the various responses by people to the breaking of the Atoom Peace Treaty. Yeah, I mean, perversely, I think it's it's our game is actually much simpler in that element than real life, particularly with certainly with the four orc nations. You know, the Yatoon are written to be fiercely honourable. If they sign a deal, they will stick to it. That's 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 their nature. That And, and they don't. There's no scenario under which the Yatoon will have an election, elect a new populist king, and that king's going to go, you know what, I'm going to tear up that deal I made with the empire. It isn't going to happen because there's no point in us exposing the empire to that kind of internal Yatoon politics. It would just make their game less fun. So we don't do that. The Yatoon are largely unchanging. They're an honorable people. If they sign a deal, they'll stick to a deal. The Grendel, their word is their bond because they're traders. They're not nice people. <laughs> Boy, they are not nice people. They're, 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 they're assholes. But their word is their bond. And then, of course, you look at the Druze who will you know, it's really quite interesting writing that piece of plot. And I, I, th I can remember us discussing it, Andy. I think it was me pitched to you the idea that we would send the negotiators in, attempt, Druze would sit down with the Empire and try and sign a peace deal with the absolute explicit intention of immediately breaking it and immediately, just so that they could get a short-term military advantage. Mm -hmm. it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a little bit more complicated than that because obviously at one point, the Druze also attempted to negotiate a deal that would have been more upfront, more honest. They'd still mm -hmm. have broken it, but the plan was definitely not to break it immediately if the Empire was prepared to play ball. Yes, we came to the um, the, the final deal that the Druze put forward was actually after the final deal. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. That That's right. So there's a long period of negotiation where the Druze tried to negotiate to get a deal that would last a few years. And then when it was absolutely clear that had failed, we then went in to, to just basically to be the Druze, to play them true to their treacherous nature. Um and, and so that last, you, you could make a good argument that that last last time they went in is not really a diplomacy plot. It's not really a negotiation plot. It's a con artist plot. It's a con artist plot. It's can you see through the fact that these people you're dealing with are just horrible, horrible, horrible <laughs> liars. Uh, but you're absolutely right. So the negotiation took place before then. There was a, a significant period of negotiation that ran up to that point where the Druze were absolutely genuine about trying to negotiate uh, but they would still have broken the deal. But as you say, might have been two, three years hence. Um, that the, the Druze will keep a deal for as long as it is in their interest to do so.
What else have we got on our discussion topic? From what we wrote down in advance, uh, we've actually hit up all the points. <laughs> hey. Do we want to talk about... Do, do, do... I'm trying to think what else there is. Ambassadors? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting one. Uh, certainly, there's, there's a good point to make about ambassadors. Um, if you look at, and again, we can, we can. This is a, a great example to make. Um, that the nature of people is that they don't want to give power to other people. If you, you know, every government gets elected on a platform of decentralising power, and every government centralises power and authority. It's not completely true, but it's the pattern that you see over and over. People want to take power and keep hold of it. It's, it's a human instinct to try and accumulate power. We're not good at sharing it. So PD wants to create a game where lots of people are empowered, as many as possible, really, because that makes the game more fun. If there was only one character who had any power at all in Empire, you know, if the Empress literally made every decision without any recourse to any other character, I'm sure Ros is probably laughing right this minute, uh, the game would be drastically less interesting. It would just be, it would be unplayable. It would be utterly banal. Uh, the more empowered individuals are, the the, be- the more interesting the game is because it's just more fun. It's, it's, it's more interesting. It's more fun to be empowered and it's more fun to play with other empowered characters. But that is not in your character's best interest. It is in your character's best interest to have all the power to themselves. Why is that relevant? Because the Senate devolves power to negotiate to the ambassador. You appoint an ambassador and then you give them power to negotiate with a, a foreign um, uh, nation or a barbarian nation. And we try as PD as much as possible to, to enshrine that authority, to give that character as much support as, as possible, because we're very conscious that if they've been appointed by the Senate, there is the clear risk that the Senate will really just be using that person as as a cat's paw, that they effectively, they won't really have any power at all. They just have to do whatever they're told. And we're always very wary of that kind of power. We're always trying to give people real power rather than just having to do what some other PC tells them. But what's relevant in the game, and I think it's really interesting when you look at the EU negotiations. So uh, Theresa May appoints David Davis as a Brexit secretary, sends him, and that was clearly a political shenanigans keep her the hard right of the Tory party off her back she sends him off to the EU the 27 appoint Barnier and give him a genuine mandate they say right you're in charge there's no way us 27 nations can negotiate with Britain you're in charge negotiate the deal sign the deal with Britain these are our red lines this is what we want this is what we don't want Barnier goes in there with a genuinely from the out from this out appears to me from the outside genuinely empowered to make that deal. David Davis has no power authority whatsoever. He's basically just an errand boy for Theresa May, who's not there. And at that point, he's not even particularly involved in the negotiations. He's got no power authority at all. So he's unable to make any kind of convincing or credible deal. And he's unable to get the best of the negotiations. Nothing really happened with any of the negotiations with the EU until Theresa May 
got involved and started to get involved personally with the negotiations and be handling them either directly or through her direct lieutenant. I think it's Ollie, Ollie Robbins or someone like that. And that's a clear failure because if they genuinely may have been able to find someone she trusted, uh, an MP she trusted and appointed in charge of those negotiations and given them genuine power and authority and said, whatever deal you get, you bring it back. That's our deal. We'll go with it then that person would have been able to make a more effective deal. And and so, you know, the power, the PD's attempt to give those ambassadors as much power as possible uh, actually works to the empire's advantage because the more empowered those negotiators are, the the, the, the better a deal they'll be able to get for the empire. Because, you know, the, the, yeah. But like a lot of our political stuff, it's a trade-off. It makes the empire more powerful, but it makes the individual nations less powerful. crucially if you appoint someone and they go in with their preconceived whatever they've got um, it might be in the interest of the empire as a whole but it may not be in the interests of Wintermark for example no absolutely but that's what makes the game interesting that is the very crux of what makes empire an interesting game because now if you're Wintermark you should be fighting like crazy to ensure that whoever the negotiator with the fool is it's a winter marker. If I was a winter mark, that would be my three line whip. I'd be saying to my senators, raise merry hell. The person in charge of the negotiation with the fool must not be a Verushkin. They must be a winter marker. That would be just. And why? Because it seems to have been a Verushkin for some time now. And oddly, all the deals that keep getting signed between the Empire. And the and the fool favour the nation of the, the the negotiator. Well, that's human nature. That's just how human beings work. We are inherently biased. So the game is to fight to get your people into those positions because there is deliberately a, a conflict between the nations. What Wintermark wants is not in the best interest of the marches, is not in the best interest of the Brass Coast. They have some pooled collective interests, which are expressed through the empire itself. But ultimately, they at some level, they're in competition with each other. Uh, and we talked about diplomacy being hard, and that lays out one of the obvious hard problems, is that we have done our level best to make it so that no position will make everybody happy. Yes. Somebody will always be unhappy. Somebody will always be clamoring about the fact that you've done a terrible job because your deal only benefits seven tenths of the empire. Yeah. And that, yeah, I, that is one of the things that makes empire, I think, sometimes difficult. And, and it's, it, it's difficult to run and make, you know, it's difficult to play because there's no perfect outcomes. There's no outcome. There's no campaign where you go away, defeat the Yatoon and no Imperial soldiers die. That doesn't happen. There's no negotiation where you go in, negotiate with the Druze and they go, oh, we surrender. We give you everything. Doesn't happen. The, 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 the victories always involve compromises. There are always bitter pills to swallow and the, and the pain never falls equally on everybody. It's um, not many miles away from the way that the most victorious battle is still going to have dead people. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's there's always a price to be paid. And, you know, that's a reflection of the very low fantasy nature of the game. I think that, that it's it has that gritty, difficult, painful, 
you know, everything has a price, everything has a cost. And it's all about, well, what things are you willing to pay? What things are you, what price are you willing to pay? What prices are you not willing to pay? Um, so no one is there. You never get a result where everyone's happy. And, I, and if you did, what a failure for the game that would be. Why would we bother running that plot? Why bother briefing that NPC? You know, if, if the Druze were simply going to surrender and agree to everything the Empire wanted, there wouldn't even be a point in sending the NPC in the field. They'd just do it in a wind of fortune. <laughs> Instead of a wind of fortune where the Druze write to the Empire and go, we give in, you can have anything you want, just let us know what it is. There's no point sending an NPC on if they literally have to agree to everything the players ask because there's no joy, there's no conflict in the role playing. It would be like having a battle and not fielding any orcs. It'd be like all 400 Imperial players roll out there and there's not a single orc to fight. No one would come out of that going, yay, we won. What a triumph. Nobody died. In fact, nobody even got hit. In fact, nothing happened. They'd be like, oh, that was pointless. What was the, that was no fun. There has to be challenge. There has to be bloodshed. There has to be a price. There has to be a cost. There has to be risk. Or there's no drama. And for those things to happen, you need this this conflicts and you need the conflicts that spin out of it. You say that we had quite a successful Maelstrom downtime battle, I recall, which had like 5,000 people on one side and literally on the other. That was one of the high points of Maelstrom for me. Was it? Which battle was that? That was Flambard versus Amonsar. I seem to remember you writing quite a scathing and sarcastic description of that battle. I said I enjoyed it. Yeah. Hmm. I think you need to be careful. I think you need to be really careful. There's a huge difference between what you enjoy reading about and what you enjoy doing. There's no doubt that, that lots of, of players will enjoy reading a battle write-up. I've got no problem with, with us doing a Winds of War battle in which the players go there and trounce. The, in fact, we had one recently. Mm. You know, the players went there and basically trounced the opposition who effectively didn't show up. Um, so they, you know, and, and I'm pretty sure most military commanders will know which campaign I'm referring to. They, they won effectively, I think with zero losses. There was basically... You know, there were less losses than there would be in a normal three month training period or however it might be described in the real world. Um, I'm reminded and that happens in the real world, too. Actually, I'm reminded of um, there's a, a, you know, if you look at the second Iraq war, uh, you know, the kind of the Iraqis were fated to be this really powerful Middle Eastern force. And the Americans just rolled over them. They couldn't keep the peace afterwards. That turned into a terrible, terrible military conflict. But the actual American army versus the Iraqi army was just like, it was so one-sided. I mean, there's, there's no, there's just no analogue I can think of. It was just a walkover. The famous um, Bill Hicks sketch about it. Right. I, I don't think I've seen that sketch, but I shall look it up. Um, but the point is, those things happen in the real world. And sometimes they happen in our military campaigns. They happen in the Winds of War battles. We never write an uptime battle. Tom, uh, Tom, who runs our battles, never comes to us and goes, I've got a great idea for battle. The players go in to this border location where there's a vitally important Yatoon supply depot and there's literally no one guarding it. They've made a mistake. <laughs> the guards have got lost. There's no one there. 
they turn up, they grab all the stuff and just go home again. We'd be like, no, 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 Tom. We're, we're, he wouldn't come to us with that and we wouldn't accept it as a battle. It would be a, a credible triumph. Be like, yay, we won. But nobody would feel satisfied. You've got to have. So you can have narrative, you know, that, and that's, you know, the skill of the writer can create a really exciting narrative about what has happened in downtime and you've won even though there wasn't really any difficulty winning, hurrah, you, you know, a good writer can still make that fun to read. You can't make that fun to play. You, you, you can't, um, you can't simply have the players turn up and face no opposition of any kind. Now you can cheat. You can run a battle and go, right, let's throw this one. Whatever happens, the players are going to win. You can absolutely do that. We don't do it. We've never done it. And it's a through, you know, it's, a, it's a one of our red lines. It's one of our dogmatic positions. We would never do it. But it is possible. So you can give players the impression that there is a challenge and there's a conflict when actually there isn't because you never had any any intention of allowing the players to lose. Or you could do the other or opposite, of course. You could go, let's just keep throwing the orcs at the players until they lose. Again, we've never done that. and We would never do that. But but as the organiser, you can absolutely cheat. You can make it look like there's a conflict when actually there is no conflict where the possibility of loss does not exist or the possibility of, of success does not exist. But I don't think you can do that. I don't believe personally that you can do that on an ongoing basis convincingly. I think the players will find you out. If you hand them every battle and basically just let them win, you will get found out. Um, and then once the players know, you know, for me and for the kind of style of LARP that I enjoy running and for the style of kind of LARP I enjoy playing, that lessens the sense of triumph. It detracts from it. You know, we, we're not going to run ever run a negotiation where our diplomats just go in and just give the players everything they want because it's like, oh, let's give them a victory. They're, you know, they're not, they're, 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 they want to, they want something to cheer them up. Let's let them win. We, we just don't ever do that. Um, and it's, you know, it's linked to our dogmatic style of LARP, of what we think makes good LARP. It's got to be conflict. It's got to have drama. Cool, I don't, I'm not sure if we've got anything else to say. We are just over the one hour mark. Hey! So we can wrap up there if you like. I think so. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed our Brexit podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm certain that by the we time it is out, it will all be utterly irrelevant and that so many more worse things will have happened. We should probably put some sort of disclaimer on the end about how opinions expressed, yada, yada, are definitely the opinions of the people who run the game. So I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that should definitely be in. All opinions expressed are definitely the opinions of the people in the, of the game and should be absolutely understood to be their actual genuine political opinions. Hopefully this is the start of us doing some more regular things like this yeah i was thinking really... all the way through i'd like a chat at some point i think it'd be useful just to talk about why festlarp is like a soap opera because mm. you were talking about no outcome that makes everybody happy yep and that is a that is a controversial element in of itself we don't really talk about it in the podcast no but, you're but right where our diplomacy strongly brings out that idea that that sometimes you are choosing between least worst outcome rather than the obvious good outcome and the obvious bad outcome. And it's interesting because you're right, that is so like a soap opera. If you think about it, most LARP that we're accustomed to playing has the narrative structure of the film. 
as the narrative structure of the story. Namely, the characters go on the hero's journey. They have a terrible reversal. They grow as people. They, they achieve a great victory and everyone lives happily ever after. That kind of whatever that that that, that you know, that, that that hero's journey that is, you know, the one story that exists or the one of the six stories or whatever stupid way you want to analyze stories. But but that is the archetypal story. It's the archetypal structure of the film and it's uh, or a book. And, and it is the common structure that we're used to in live role playing. You say that, but I played Omega and I finished that campaign uh, mad in a pile in a tent because of Adrian Hunter. Um, yeah. But, but we should was... probably save something for the next podcast. The, we should. The point is, though, that was another game that I was involved in running. It's a soap opera was game. It? Yeah, I believe it was. Yeah. Right. Should we have we have we stopped recording yet? Uh, no, we have not. But I'm right, going to wrap case, it up. We should here. all say thank you very much for listening um, and, and call it there before we start the second podcast. The second <laughs> podcast. Yes. I assume we would just cut all that crap I was just talking about. Yeah. Uh, thank you. No, and good night. One voice, one people and one air.